Now, Executive Suites with WPRI.com reporter Ted Nisi. Welcome to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi. Always glad to have you with us. Today, we're talking about entrepreneurship in Rhode Island with uh, two women who have started their own businesses. Later on, we're going to hear from Shirley Moore, who is the co-founder co and owner of Be More Interpreting. But right now, I'm pleased to be joined by Milena Pagan. You may not know Milena, but you probably know her bagels. <laughs> Rebel Artisan Bagels. They are selling like crazy, and you're starting to see them all over the state. Thanks for being here, Milena. Thank you for having me, Ted. So, um... I, sometimes we have companies on that make complex widgets in their manufacturing <laughs> operations. Bagels people really understand, but yeah. for people who aren't familiar with the company, tell us a little bit about your business. Sure. So we started um, our shop in 2017, and since then we've been doing hand-rolled and boiled bagels on the east side of Providence. Um, I taught myself how to make bagels in my home kitchen. I'm not a professional. Well, I am now, <laughs> but I was not a professional baker before. I just felt like this was missing in my neighborhood and I decided to take it on myself. And since then we've expanded a lot. We do all sorts of pastries. Um, we popularized Pop-Tarts in the state, not to take credit. <laughs> um, we do coffee, we cure our own locks. Everything's made from scratch, fresh, delicious, and it's just been a wild success. You didn't sell the, the everything coating for people yeah. to put on other stuff. I've yeah. seen that at kitchen shops. <laughs> yes, because we have our own everything seasoning mix. So we put it into a little jar and sell it locally as well. And so we're taping this in March of 2020, and there's actually some news coming because you're getting ready to open another store. Yes. Um, so I never thought three years into this we'd be opening a second shop, but an opportunity came up in my neighborhood as well, and we have a shop coming called Little Sister. So it's going to be on the corner of Hope and Rochambeau on the east side, and we're going to be an all-day cafe and bakery um, with a little bit of Puerto Rican influence as a nod to my heritage. I was going to say that's your heritage. So your personal story is fun, and I'm not <laughs> the first journalist to quiz you about it. As you already said, you were not always planning to be a bagel entrepreneur. You didn't no. grow up making bagels <laughs> or anything. You actually have an MIT degree yes. in chemical engineering. Yes. So <laughs> tell us how you got from uh, going from from you went from Puerto Rico to MIT. And mm -hmm. then you you came to here. Tell us about that path and sort of yeah. how you came to decide this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I did my high school, my education there. Um, when I was in high school, I was super into cooking, you know, watched the Food Network, all that stuff. And I thought I wanted to go to culinary school. And then I applied to MIT on the encouragement of one of my professors or my teachers. Um, and I got in and I decided I can't. I can't pass this up, you know, it's an opportunity that doesn't really come to many people. So I did my bachelor's in chemical engineering, and then I had a series of office jobs, you know, corporate life, and that wasn't really a good fit for my personality. I'm, I'm very much a self-starter, I'm very motivated, very disciplined. Um, so I decided to take a step back, and I left my job. Um, that's actually what brought me to Rhode Island. So then I left my job in Rhode Island, and I sat in my house, and I'm like, what am I going to do next? <laughs> and I was like, well, I may as well just try this. You know, I'll give myself six months, and if it works out, great. And if not, I'll just go look for another job. And within those six months, like, I took all of my training to be a food safety manager. I set up my business, like, you know, with the state and all that stuff. I did pop-ups. I did my social media. And within four months, we had already signed a lease for the shop. So it's just kind of like you don't know what's happening. You're just, 
you know, sitting in a rocket ship and it's just taking <laughs> off and like, you just have to go with it. And why bagels? When did you say, you know, you could, there's donut shops now, there, yeah. there were cupcakes at the time, everything <laughs> else. Why, when did you say, I feel like bagels is, is the sweet spot? Well, I would eat bagels for breakfast <laughs> every day at the cafeteria at work and I just didn't really like them. And I had just moved from Brooklyn, so, you know, I had a different standard. Um, and I asked around and I'm like, am I missing something? Like, where's the neighborhood bagel shop? And people were like, well, you know, there's this place, that place, but nowhere we really love. And then um, I was doing retail strategy for my prior job, so I decided to apply those skills to studying the market for bagels locally. And then I was like, you know, there's, there's something here. Like, there's demand and no one's really doing it in the way that I'm thinking about it. Um, and that way I put together like a little business plan and I shopped it around to people I respected and people seemed very encouraging. So so your corporate background, as much as it, it's funny to think that path, it actually did help you or that what you've learned going into it being oh, a small yeah. business owner. Absolutely, absolutely. We treat, we don't call it like a small business at Rebel. We really view ourselves as a startup. Um, this is not going to be it for us, you know, just one store and done. Um, but we really apply a lot of the tools and techniques that I learned from working in a Fortune 500 corporation to like the small, you know, startup mentality. We, uh, we have to go to break, but before we do, I have to ask you, we often hear uh, restaurants are among the hardest businesses to get off the ground and keep going. So it's when true. we come back, I'm going <laughs> to ask you for a little insight into that. But first, let's take a break because that's a, that's a longer answer. When we come <laughs> back, we're going to talk more with Melena Pagan, founder and owner of Rebel Artisan Bagels. Stay with us on Executive Suite. Welcome back to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi. Later on the show, we're going to talk with Shirley Moore, who owns Be More Interpreting, as well as a new co-working space over in Pawtucket. But right now, pleased to continue the conversation with Melena Pagan. She is founder and owner of Rebel Artisan Bagels, as well as their second shop, Little Sister, you said, right? Yes, Sisters? Little Sister. Little Sister, <laughs> singular, uh, which is opening up soon. So I, I mentioned uh, before the break, I, I have to ask you about being in the restaurant, in the food business. Yeah. You always hear that that is among the toughest industries uh, period, but particularly to start something new. You've made it work, um, but I'm curious, do you think that's overblown? Do you think that's true? And, and what lessons did you learn that helped you get through that? Yeah, um, I think it's pretty accurate to say that it's very hard. I haven't tried starting a business in any other industry. Um, it's, it's, there's so many pieces to coordinate. I think that's what makes it a challenging job for me. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I love coming in every day and it's a little bit different and there's always some crisis to mitigate, um, which are, like I'm great at it. Um, but it's, you know, for a lot of restaurants, like the profit margins are tight. There's not a lot of room to make mistakes. Um, you know, you're dealing with large numbers of people, like food safety is very important. So there's just a lot of kind of risks to mitigate throughout the whole business. We talk a lot, especially in recent years, I think about the food culture in Providence, particularly and in Rhode Island more generally, the food industry. Do you find, do you think that's helpful if you're, if someone's starting a new food business? Is there a culture in place that maybe in, in some other city it wouldn't take off as much? Is there a culture that helps people want to try new places? I think like people in Rhode Island are very adventurous and open-minded. So I've, I was very pleasantly surprised to see that when I started my business. Um, 
I think the cost, like the barriers to entry here are much lower than in larger cities, but there's like a good willingness to pay. People understand high quality. They want to support local. You know, they don't mind paying to like have it done right. So I think the ecosystem here is actually very like welcoming and supportive of new food businesses. What was, I always like to ask entrepreneurs this, what was a, a tough or just a big early lesson you learned, you know, something that was a wake up call or a moment you said, okay, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've definitely learned something today I'm gonna remember. Um, there's definitely <laughs> a lot of lessons. Um, I think if anything, this job has taught me to just like remain calm. Um, all you have to do is outlive whatever challenge you're working with at the moment. So you just gotta like keep calm and like work through it. My husband tells me, like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> and I always I always think of that when I'm like, just one bite at a time, you know, stay calm. And also just like, stay very focused on what you're doing. Definitely be open to feedback, especially when you are trying to play to your market and you have consumers that you need to please. I think listening is always important. But at the end of the day, you take the feedback, you filter it, and you like, have that conversation with yourself about what are we actually going to put into place with the business. And broadening it out, you've definitely emerged as a leader among younger entrepreneurs in Providence, especially young women entrepreneurs, though not solely. Um, I'm curious, you have a lot of conversations because <laughs> of that with other people starting various kinds of businesses. Are there, are there themes you hear, opportunities, challenges that come up a lot when you talk to your fellow entrepreneur class in, in the capital? Um, I think hiring is always a challenge for us. Um, you know, we're all very specialized and we uh, do what we do at a very high standard. So hiring is always challenging. I think overall, um, we all have an interest in like taking care of our employees, building businesses that are sustainable for the community, for our suppliers, for our employees, for our customers. So we're always talking about like how do we up the bar, how do we elevate the game and push ourselves to like be stewards of good business practices, which, you know, in a in a small business setting is like much, much harder to do than in a large company. We have fewer resources to work with. And how about advice for state and city leaders? They always want more small businesses starting, uh, medium-sized businesses, they want them to start, they want them to grow, they want them to thrive. What <coughs> what what would you advise, you know, the mayor, the governor, other people <laughs> around them, what would you say would be most helpful to get to have more entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think um, starting a business is really hard, mostly because you're flying blind and you don't know what you don't know. And then all of a sudden you get hit with like tons of penalties mm -hmm. and you know, I broke this rule that I didn't even know about, that kind of thing. So if there was some kind of concierge to like help guide you through that, I think the Secretary of State has done a great job with the Department of Business Regulations and all that stuff. Um, so anytime I need to go look up like what licenses do I need to open my new business, like it's on there. Um, but I think we could do more of that, especially at a local level in mm -hmm. cities, like every town does it a little bit differently. Um, and then also, you know, like healthcare is very important like minimum wage is really important. So if everyone gets put on the same level playing field and all of the businesses have the same requirements to provide for their employees, I think that's gonna help the ecosystem. All right, Milena Pagan, Rebel Artisan Bagels, thank you so much for thank joining you, me. Don't go away though, because when we come back, we're gonna talk with Shirley Moore, another entrepreneur about her interpreting business in Pawtucket in a new co-working space she's opened. Stay with us on Executive Suite.
Welcome back to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi, joined now by Shirley Moore. She is the owner and co-founder of Be Moore, interpreting Moore, of course, with two O's like her name. Shirley, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, first of all, tell us a little about your business and what you do at Be Moore Interpreting. Yeah, so Be More Interpreting um, is an interpreting and translation firm, and we focus on helping people really bridge communication. So our goal is to establish um, people coming newly into communities or just integrating into community, helping them establish, build community, connect um, with providers, businesses, and just the the new world that they're stepping into. Yeah, in some ways, like it's must it's the most basic level of integrating somebody into the community, yes. right? Can they talk and understand and, and and be able to communicate what they need? Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I, I have a possibly dumb question about interpreting because I'm fascinated by it. It seems really hard to me as someone who has has not mastered any second language. Um, how does the process go in your head? Do you listen, translate your mind, and then say in the other language what it is? Is it just pop right? out in the other language like what goes through your mind as you're listening to someone probably talking quickly in their normal cadence and trying to get it out into the other language so it depends right there's different modes or styles of interpretation um, so there's consecutive interpretation where you wait and mm -hmm. a sentence or two and then you um, say it in another language right and then there's simultaneous which is my favorite um, <laughs> and that's like you're a few words behind the person and you're really trying to emulate everything that they're doing capture their essence their content their context all in one, which to me is like my favorite. Sounds really hard. It is. <laughs> for some people. Yeah, that's right. Does it get easier over time as you've been doing it for a number of years? I think so. I think that as an interpreter, you begin to develop what mode or what style works for you. Like for me, I can do consecutive. Mm -hmm. I, you can speak and like, but I, I thrive in simultaneous. And so you sort of understand what um, industries you're really good in mm -hmm. and what mode you operate best in. And then it becomes like super easy. Which languages are your, are you most uh, efficient at to, to do translation? Spanish and um, English, and I speak Brazilian Portuguese and can understand some sign language. But oh, wow, even some sign language. You're all yes. of it. all right. So I want to try translating something. I'm interpreting. Not inter excuse me, interpreting. Um, <laughs> Translations are written. Interpretations are oral. See, I'm already learning things. Yes. All right. So interpretation. So. If I just say it, you'll say it in Spanish? Si yo lo digo, tú lo dices en español. Welcome to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi, and we're talking today with some great local entrepreneurs. Bienvenida a la sala ejecutiva. Yo soy Ted Nisi, y estamos hablando hoy con unos gran emprendedores. And I like, and you have my <laughs> the full, uh, the, the way of doing it there too. That's amazing. So, I, so let's talk about it as a business. We know, and I'm glad you corrected me on interpretation with between translation, I bet a lot of people at home don't realize the difference yes. either there. So um, we know the number of Rhode Islanders whose first language is something other than English has been growing in mm -hmm. recent years. Our um, Spanish-speaking population has grown considerably. Ha has the growth of your business tracked the growth of that population? Yes. So we launched in 2016. Um, we didn't do any marketing or anything like that. It was all word of mouth and really just tried to figure out how do we iterate this thing? Like, how do we do it and make it better and make it better and make it better? And in three years, I was able to quit my full-time job and focus on our business. And it's really just opened up doors. We have great customers. Um, we get to do conferences at Brown University or interpret IEPs at Segway Institute for Learning. Um, so it's, there's always a need and it's, and it's proven, um, the community has proven that not only that we deliver a great service, but that there's a need and, it con and it's continued to grow. So uh, do you have, a, is it all, you have a co-founder as well, is it yes. all the two of you? Do you have a stable of people doing it with you or do you expect to go that way? 
So it is the two of us managing like the day-to-day -day operations, but we have a team about, of about 95 interpreters and translators, and we have over 18 languages at the moment. Amazing. So as I mentioned, it's not your only business because you've also founded a co-working space mm -hmm. in Pawtucket. It's called The Rail. Tell us a little about that and where the idea came from. So the Rails actually birthed out of Be More Interpreting. So for a long time, Be More Interpreting oper operated out of different co-working spaces. And I was still working a full-time job, so it just made sense to keep my business there. Um, but when it was time to phase out of my full-time job and really focus on the business, I didn't feel like those co-working spaces were my home. Mm. Um, being an urban entrepreneur, someone who grew up on Mitten Ave, I wanted a place that captured sort of my essence and who I was, and that really, um, really launched the rail. The rail, um, some people think because it's in Pawtucket, it's because of the new subway <laughs> station. It's not, it's after Harriet Tubman. Um, so all of our memberships are associated with working on the rail and really our focus there is on providing or removing barriers to entry for urban and unlikely entrepreneurs. Unlikely um, entrepreneurs, who unlikely. do you mean by that? That's People interesting. that look like me, people <laughs> that grew up in the projects or in the urban city who do not have a lot of money, who have a lot of obstacles to entry. Um, my, my business partner, Zoila and I, we launched um, Be More Interpreting with $25 a month. And so our goal really is to help people understand um, that there are barriers, yes, but as a community, we can come together, address those barriers, and really launch businesses that really establish a legacy for our children and our children's children and change the way our communities current op currently operate. Well, it's interesting, too, if you saw that, that challenge, those barriers, or uh, do you feel there's been a lot of talk in recent years, uh, particularly in, in the cities, about you know helping entrepreneurs, reaching out to people, having programs in place at the state level, at the city level, et cetera. Do you find those still aren't as well targeted for people in un unlikely entrepreneurs or have you seen progress on that? I'm curious your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> your thoughts, you can tell. Um, I believe that there is a lot of effort mm -hmm. um, and I applaud that effort. I firmly believe that effort requires change and in order for there to be great change, a lot of these organizations have to change who they are, How so? right? Spell that um, out. Yeah. So, you have white middle class America developing systems for people who look like me, who have no relation to my struggle, who have no concept of where I've been or what I had to fight through to get to where I'm at. And I think that that has to change. If you're gonna develop systems, bring those people in that have overcome who have a connection to the community, who can share in their struggle to help shape those things. And let's stop putting this one-size-fits-all approach um, to entrepreneurship. Because if you looked at Zoila and I three years ago, you would have never thought that we would have been able to make it. Let me ask you just that. When did the when did the shift happen in your own mind? You know, you call yourself an unlikely entrepreneur, but at some <laughs> point you became a likely entrepreneur, right? <laughs> when did you say to yourself, not only do I see a business model here, but I can own I can run that business. What 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 said that what what gave you that confidence to do that? So I think, you know, one of my, my passions is like immigrants, we come here and in our communities, we have to sell and make in order to survive. So I always made and sold. At my, we did nails growing up at my house, makeup, you name it, we did it. My mom made pasteles, we sold them, you know, like I always kind of so had that vibe. It's in your roots, I then, had that being vibe. entrepreneurial. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but 
I had worked for 20 years in human services. It was all that I knew. So that sort of shifts your mindset, right? You're focused on giving people things. I took an entrepreneurship course called Bootstrap Bootcamp, and the first question that, that the, the professor asked was, um, what's one thing that you do right now that you can monetize that will generate money tomorrow? And my dream was like, I'm gonna buy houses and I'm gonna flip them. That was my goal, right? <laughs> And he was like, that's a really big dream. What can you do now? And I was like, interpreting. Like, I do it. I already had some contracts. I was already working for different um, companies. I knew the business. I didn't know what a business model was, but I knew the business. I knew how to make money at it. And I said, Let, you know what? I'm going to launch an interpreting firm. And it just worked. And it just worked. So it was partly just having someone say to you, what can you do? Just having you in your own mind just think, what is, oh, wait, I have this skill and I can monetize that. And then it takes off from there. That's it. I do that with people all the time. So you, um, you're a businesswoman in Pawtucket. Pawtucket has had, as you know, a lot of hard blows in recent years. The hospital closing, the POSOX are leaving. But there's also been some more optimistic news lately. The soccer stadium redevelopment effort, um, the new commuter rail station you mentioned earlier they're working on. How are you feeling about Pawtucket's prospects today in 2020 as a, as a business person there? I have to be completely honest. I'm like, oh, nice. let's go. Why? Because I think that, um, first of all, in our camp, we call it gentrification, right? And so the process is gentrifying our city. And I think that there's an obvious opportunity for us to say to black and brown folks, hey, let's capitalize on this gentrification. Let's not allow it to drive us out of our community. Let's not allow to uh, um, allow it to take the, take our community from us. Because you don't us. often hear that said in a positive way, like you're looking at potential positive for gentrification, it sounds like. Yes, I don't think that it's a completely positive, but I think there's a, a, an opportunity that when done correctly, um, our community can really capitalize from. Um, my husband and I, we travel a lot, and we went to Roatan, Honduras, um, and one thing that we noticed, we got off the cruise, and there were like all these entrepreneurs that were there, and they were building together. So one guy pulled us and told us to get on this bus, but he had no relation to the bus. He just like gathered people for the bus, and the bus driver had no relation to the tour guide, but they, this other guy brought her in, and they all, the port was coming, right? They were there, they built it, but they all said, you know what, we can make money, we can feed off of that. And they worked together to feed each other every day. What do you think needs to happen for that to be the reality in Pawtucket as, as the city clearly gets reshaped in the next few years? We start talking about it now. You know, that's why Be More, Be More Interpreting is in downtown Pawtucket. That's why the rail is in downtown Pawtucket. My husband, Leslie Moore, and I launched the rail because we said, you know what? People are going to need a low entry place, right? $30 a month to have a spot at the rail. Um, that's not a lot of money for our community. And so if you create the opportunity, people can jump on and off the train right there. They can begin to develop these businesses. And as things rise here, we rise with it rather than it rises and now we have to go because we can't afford it. All right, some optimism and some good advice from Shirley Moore from Be More Interpreting. And remember, interpreting is not translation. We have yes. learned that today. Thank you, Shirley, for <laughs> being you, with me. Ted. And thank you for joining us on this week's Executive Suite. Remember, you can catch every episode of the show on WPRI.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next week on Executive Suite.